0: Welcome to the FTBL Year Zero podcast. This episode, we have John diddle CEO of Professional Footballers Australia. Whoa. That's one of the strikes of the season! Whoa! Australian football is facing multiple issues right now and the PFA is at the centre of almost all of them. Whether it's the future of the A-League or the welfare of players both here and abroad, the PFA is currently engaged on multiple fronts. We spoke to CEO John Didaluka to find out his thoughts on what happens next in a possible year zero for the A-League and the scale of the problems his union is currently facing. Welcome to the FTBL podcast, John Dideluka. Where are we at the moment? How are, you, how are the players coping? How are you getting on with the clubs?
1: Yeah, look, I think it's a, you know, it's a time of, of high pressure and high anxiety for everybody. Um, look, there's no question that when you have such a seismic shock to to your business, there's going to be a chain reaction of impacts. And I think what, I think the role that certainly we've tried to play the PFAs to cushion that impact for the players as much as we can, particularly in terms of the mental health and well-being of the players to ensure they had somewhere to go to help them navigate this sure. in a logical way. Um, then, in terms of the industry piece that was trying to work with uh, clubs and FFA to try and best, you know. Just, um, you know, collectively share the burden of, um, the impact of, of COVID 19. Sure. You know, that, that, in the first instance, that was challenging because decisions were made in isolation. Um, but hopefully we can now recalibrate and, and understand that it, all these concerns are shared concerns. And by referring, you know, one's anxiety onto the other it doesn't help the game long term. There oh. needs to be a united front to absorb the shock of this and then hopefully work in unison to build some equilibrium.
0: Sure. Just going back to the, the mental health aspect of it, has that so far been an issue with uh, uh, your members?
1: Yeah, One of the, one of our observations is over the past three years we've had a bit, about a 400% increase in the amount of players who are accessing our mental health services now, part of that is we've invested a lot more money in there, so we're, we're um, spreading the, the net wider. I think there's an increased awareness from players about, or well, across society generally, about wellness. Um, but I think certainly in the last um, few weeks, we've had to be really proactive in how we've addressed players. So historically, we've had our outreach program there of support if players needed it, they opted in. I think what we we decided to do two or three weeks ago, once it started becoming a really profound issue, was to be really proactive and make sure that every player had some contact point to start having discussions about what fears they might have. Um, And, you know, a large proportion of players are very not only challenged by what the next two months looks like, you know, the balance of his contract year, but what the future might look like. Whether that's you know their own unemployment or or potentially what impacts this might have on their long-term contract that they've already they've already got in place, uh, but more broadly, not just about their own personal circumstances, about what this means for the league and the game. You know, like most people within football, um, you do care about the broader health of the sport. You know, we're all very engaged custodians of the game and. You know, the majority of players are no different. They care for the sport. They want the sport to be in great health. They want, um, you know, year on year, growth in the game at participation levels, economically at the A-League. So they're concerned. I mean, and rightly so, because nobody at this stage could, can really crystal ball what we might, this might look like in, in six months, 12 months, 24 months. I think we all have our different ideas, but I think it's really important that we start this process now of, aggregating some of those thoughts and, and managing what this transition model look like together.
0: Sure. Going on to um, you were saying, you know, the United front uh, out of uh, what kind of percentage are you currently looking at of players who have been furloughed or stood down from the, the clubs?
1: Yes, yeah, 7 out of 11 clubs have stood down players. Um, about 40 plus percent, you know, between 40 and 45, depending on status of different contracts but about that number come off contract at the end of May. So as you can appreciate, that's quite a large group of players who will have quite acute issues to deal with, you know, next week and the week after, but also in a couple of months time. Yep. So that that's quite a, a large burden to carry and we need to help those players manage that as effectively as possible, whether it's through agreements on salary or whether it's through the the mental, mental health and wellbeing services and resources we can apply.
0: Have, um, I mean, when you say they've been stood down, presumably that's without pay, is it?
1: Yes, that's right, yeah.
0: yeah. Is yeah. the FFE coming to the party to provide any kind of subsistence there? No. So it's literally you're on your own?
1: Yeah, well, with the, with the JobKeeper um, initiative from the government, my, my sense would be that all clubs would be eligible for that. So, from our perspective, it's clear that, yeah, you know, clearly critical that each club applied to that so they can pass on some of the government benefits onto their, not just their players, but their broader staff if they can. Um, but beyond that, there's no, um, yeah, financial support in place
0: yeah have the clubs uh, indicated that they're they likely to get on the job keeper route for the players
1: well certainly that's the discussions they're having with ffa and with paul letterer um, on behalf of the clubs he's just beating that down making sure the clubs are you know those clubs that are eligible that should be all are taking that taking advantage of that initiative to help support you know particularly the more vulnerable players at this time you know we, we, about 37% of our players earn below the national median wage. Um, the national minimum wage is about 42000 and we have a lot of younger players who are working full-time. Who are still well below that, about 12% of players. So there will be some players who just don't have the luxury of accrued savings to help them navigate the next couple of months. Some might be living away from home, have other commitments they need to, need to make, whether it be rent, car, you know, basic subsistence. So hopefully, um, as a minimum, we, we can lock lock that in as an industry to make sure we're not missing out.
0: Sure. What about uh, foreign players? Have the majority of them stayed in Australia or have they mostly gone home? Do you know?
1: Yeah, I think the majority are still here. I think there's been a, a small group of players who have taken an opportunity to return, but it's certainly not widespread. There's about 50 internationals who are playing in Australia, uh, about 32 of those come off contract, but so that'll create a host of issues around those who have been stood down and how job seeker or job keeper might apply to them. Probably does it based on what we've seen. Um, there's visa complexities, yeah. Um, you know, once their contracts conclude, so there's a fair bit of individual case management that we'll have to put into the internationals who are members, um, so that. You know, On their experience in Australia, it doesn't become totally toxic, um, but equally to ensure that you know these players, can, when they return home, can say the Australian football community did their best to look after them. I think that's important long-term if we want to have credibility as a destination league.
0: You guys must be working around the clock of the month.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's been... Nothing was ever seen before, clearly. I mean, the scale of what we're having to deal with is unprecedented. And that's one of the reasons why we took the decision to keep all staff on, um, all the all the existing resources we had in place to service the players we retained. And we also invested a little bit more money in, in other areas uh, because the players... Certainly we haven't experienced anything like this and none of our players have either. Now we have 280 Aussies who are playing outside of Australia in some way, shape or form. And most of those those players are spread across 35 or 36 countries. So we've got 35 or 36 different situations and then within those, there's individual circumstances that make each situation subtly different. So we've had a lot of work just to reach out to all of those players Make sure they're okay. um, If they require urgent attention, be it contractual, legal, health, the ability to help them navigate that. You know, Indonesia in particular, we faced a really acute issue where we had five or six players in Indonesia. It appeared as if some of the um, those communications from government didn't quite align with what the reality was on the ground in terms of the virus. So, the Australian embassy officials in Indonesia really quick. We got in touch with them. They gave us a more accurate picture of what might happen in Indonesia. So we had to work around the clock to get those plays out, given Qantas had stopped flying in and out. And it was just going to be a closure to the borders any day. So, you know, situations like that don't just solve them, you know, resolve themselves. It takes a lot of, lot of work here at the PFA to engineer and those sorts of outcomes. So that, that's been massive. So we reached out to every single Aussie who was playing overseas. Um, not all required assistance, but you know a lot, large proportion of them do because each person has a contract. Some weren't getting paid. Some need to get home. Some had partners who needed to get home. So yeah, a lot of, a lot of work.
0: Yeah, there's a lot of complexity. And that, that and,
1: my, and that doesn't even extend to that doesn't even start us on the A League. Yeah. Um, situation so I'm pretty glad the W League finished up the week before the <laughs> guys down so that that was one saving grace but now another problem in that we've got a lot of uh, girls who are playing in the W League who can't now take up contracts either in the US or Europe so it's another yeah. Yeah. area to manage
0: um, you, you were saying that seven clubs have stood the players down, presumably these are the seven clubs that are being most challenged by this situation. Um, how many of those do you think you see surviving?
1: Oh, that's, look, it's for each club to make those decisions. I mean, I think everybody's objective is to preserve what we have. You know, I think at its best, the o League's been a wonderful competition, and you don't have to go back too far to when we had you know sixty thousand at, at a single derby. So, um, I don't. I'm not necessarily an alarmist with um, the future of the competition. I think we can preserve it, we just need to manage the next few months in in an intelligent and balanced and compassionate way. And that applies to players, clubs, uh, all the other people who um, invest financially and emotionally in our competition. So I'd like to think that if we can work effectively, we can not only preserve the competition, we can also stabilize the clubs But we can also then be proud of the fact we protected the players. And that's always been our core objective here is not to disproportionately burden, you know, one player, one group of players, one club, um, one organization with the burden of, of COVID-19. It needs to be a shared responsibility to manage this. And and if we do that, I think everybody can, um, beat this and, and emerge stronger at the other end.
0: The big concern though is that the A-League as it currently exists can only exist with Fox Sports money and all the suggestion is that um, Fox Sports are looking for an excuse to get out of their deal and this could be the perfect uh, vehicle for them to do the getaway. Um, what's your feelings on that?
1: It's always hard to speculate on what Fox may or may not do. Um, I think there's been a, a you know a really Incredible partner for the best part of 15 years, uh, particularly for the first you know, decade plus, and you know you'd like to think that they'll stay with the game through this challenging period and, and continue to support the competition. Um, but beyond that, I think we just have to believe in our game. You know, we have to have the self confidence in the sport, in our product, um, that if you know worst case scenario, we lose. Our existing broadcast partner, we can replace them and and move on. You know that might require an economic shift and might require a correction. If that's the right term. Um, but whatever happens with that, we can always reposition who we are. The game itself will carry on. Um, it might mean we just need to work a little bit more strategically and a bit more cooperatively as a sport, and that would only be a good thing. So whatever the whatever challenge is presented, whether it's economic. Um, or in this case, you know, it would be economic. Uh, I think we just need to understand that the game is robust, support one another, and we can navigate this. You know, I'm really confident about that, but no one stakeholder can do it by themselves. It needs to be done in collaboration and, um, and in a really trusting, trusting way.
0: Do you think the A league Obviously, the game, the the sport, will survive in this country, but as a top tier professional elite competition like it has been, do you think that's that's the future of uh, for Australia? Yeah, I'll,
1: I've got I've got zero doubt that we can preserve a top level elite professional competition. Yeah, you know, in the absence of that, you know <coughs> our our stakes as a footballing nation diminishes significantly, so it must be a priority. To preserve that, and I'm, I'm not seeing any evidence that we can't. You know, if we have to scale down what we do, that's fine. I mean, a lot of nations have scaled down and repositioned themselves over time. You know, once upon a time, Ajax were the, the best team in Europe. Um, you know, once upon a time, Underlect won um, trophies at a European level. You know, the world, the world of football has changed. So, if, if Australia needs to go on a different trajectory as a as a competition, then that could be a really great opportunity, you know, the opportunity to reposition uh, the league you know, and connect it more closely to the community, uh, connect it more closely to young talent. These are, these are narratives that I think resonate with Australian football fans, but equally might actually be far more aligned to where we're at in the global pecking order. So I think fundamentally we need to have, it's just not even a negotiable point that we need to have an elite professional uh, national competition, but how we position and, and define that competition needs to be fit for purpose. Now, it needs to feed into economic opportunities, our economic context, um, and the production of high-quality players. So, you know, I, I think whatever impact this has on the A-League, I think it gives us an opportunity to reposition ourselves for the better.
0: Do you have a, a vision for the future where perhaps you know existing NPL clubs get promoted more quickly into a, a top tier type competition? Yeah, I think that's
1: part of a broader discussion. I think one of the one of the I think flaws in our thinking is often about designing a conceptual model and reverse reverse engineering it into reality. I think we need to continually look at our competition design across Australia. Um, it's not just about what the o League looks like and how other competitions intersect with that. I think we need to have a broader, you know, debate around, um, the national footprint, you know, how, how we can connect. Yeah. You know, one, the great thing about football is A, there's so many of us, you know, we always talk about our huge numbers and B, we're an incredibly diverse group, you know, and when we try to have this homogenous, um, Footballing model it works against us because we can't have a homogenous model. We need to be a little bit more our communities eclectic. So maybe our competition design needs to be a little bit more eclectic. You know, we, we need to connect people to our elite stream of football that maybe geographically are disconnected, that culturally are disconnected, and we need to then design that around what we can do economically. So. You know, competition design isn't just about saying, okay, we're going to have this A-League and let's see then you know, how everything fits around us. Um, let's actually take a step back and design something that's, that's, um, you know, connects as many people positively to the game as possible. Um, something that can help us produce the best possible players, but then also do that sustainably. And that's not about necessarily doing it on the cheap. That's about doing it in a way where the, the economic engine that you're creating can build and compound year on year.
0: It, it seems ironic when we're all stood down and, on restricted hours, etc. But do we actually have time to to recreate a more homogenised, uh, holistic uh, league structure before the next season starts? If we need to, no, probably no. Probably
1: not. I mean, I, I think we're, what, what we're in now is, is preservation mode. I mean, clearly we need to try and preserve what we have, particularly at the professional level but also at the grassroots level I mean I'm the president of a of a grassroots NPL club and it's challenging times even for local community football I mean if we can't deliver a season this year that has a huge impact on the money you can generate and the money you've already expended and the capacity to serve the service sponsors so it puts you back um, in terms of how you want to build your club so everybody will suffer if we can't reactivate football so I don't think you necessarily want to um, add additional pressure on people to redesign the entire landscape whilst you're trying to preserve some measure of the status quo. But I think the broader discussion is around competition design. It's like, okay, how do we actually work to, you know, positively connect people to the sport, you know, produce the best possible players, and how we do that in a sustainable way. And that that goes from grassroots clubs. To make sure they're not charging kids three or four grand a pop to play, and the same way it applies to elite clubs, so they're not living beyond their
0: means. Do you think there is a, a point coming up soon where maybe the, the FFA needs to set up a working committee just to see how we can reimagine football now?
1: Yes, I think there's always, yeah, you know, I think there's always space to uh, iterate what you have. Um, I've heard someone say once that, you know, sometimes perfect is the, the enemy of good. So we we need to, rather than striving necessarily for perfection, we need to focus on getting something that works and then keep continually improve that year-on-year year and have an open mind to change. Uh, I think certainly, you know, governance is a significant area where we can improve and, you know, governance for me is, is how we make decisions and for whom. You know, I think there's a lot of work we can do in that space, to make sure we're um, creating a, a national vision for where we see the game, needing to go, um, where we can drive more efficiencies across the country, um, better service, and more consistent service delivery across the nation. You know, I think so there's a big governance piece now linked in with that is um, an independent A-League and how that's structured and governed. So there's a big governance piece we can do that's not necessarily going to cost you money, but could unlock a lot of potential within the sport. Um, you know, I think culturally there's a lot of um, work to be done on how we can, you know, better align who we are as a who we are as a sport and start defining what our mission is. So there's a lot of really interesting work that I think we can think our teeth into that aren't necessarily just about things like competition design. You know, you could add a second division or you could change a few other little things, have a sixteen team A League and you know, you could tinker around the edges, and that might be great, and gives you a little stimulus. But they're not going to solve the threshold issues, yep. you know, which are around governance, around culture, around how national international pathways, you know, broader commercial design, you know, how we commercialise two million participants collectively. You know, so that there's these big picture issues that I think we can't think our teeth into. Um, that could unlock a lot of positive outcomes.
0: It's a holistic approach that's needed, then, basically, yeah.
1: Hmm. Oh, I think so. I mean, and look, we, we need, you know, it's a shame that, um, you know, obviously, it's a shame that a global pandemic setting morphed into a suffering with health issues and the public health concerns that he had, but it's also, you know, hamstrung FFA's ability to reboot the sport with the new CEO and a new board, and um, they'll now need a little bit more time to start addressing some of these threshold matters, but, I, you know, I've got no doubt that. A good good energy within the football community to support them and contribute to that process.
0: Thank you, John. I know you're a very busy man. I'll let you get on.
1: Yeah, no worries, too. What
0: about that? Whoa! That's one of the strikes of the season. Whoa! Oh, what a goal that is! Penalty! Penalty! Whoa!